Oh, it's a great uh, privilege to be here. Last night, one of the pastors came up to me and said, I'd like to come and visit you down there in Cape Town. I said, any time. So he said, no, I'd like to come and stay with you. So I said, yeah, I've got a spare bedroom now. That's fine. We, we, when we first moved to Cape Town about 18 months ago, we had this uh, flat on the beach, but our spare room was a cupboard. So... Uh, Marcus came to visit us. I said, yeah, sure, we've got a, we got a spare room. So he said, like, are you crazy? It's a cupboard. Anyway, Marcus stayed in our cupboard. He was our first guy. Anyway, I said, no, you can come because we've got a spare room now. So he said, yeah, this is what I'm wanting. I'm wanting God to speak to me. So I said, well, so I don't know what I can say. So he says, look, this is all I want to know from you. I want to come and stay with you, and all I want to know is all the stuff-ups you've made. Excuse me if that's a bad word here in Port Elizabeth. All the mistakes you've made. And so, as he said it, I thought, well, that's quite biblical, actually. This is what Paul said, 2 Corinthians 2.10. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weakness, in insults and hardships and persecutions and sufferings. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. I have made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it, he says. So I'm going to say to that guy, I'm about to make a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. So what I did is, uh, just at the tail end of Tyron's message, I thought, you know what, I, I'm actually going to try and point to Jesus today by, by looking at the real mistakes I've made over the last 20-something years. And... Um, so I gave my iPad to my wife, and I said, tell me my three biggest failures. <laughs> it didn't take her long. She just wrote them down quickly. Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> those are the ones you want to hear, hey? Because those are the honest ones. Okay, we'll get there. We'll get there. So, Nick, you want me to stop when? Okay, all right. Well, now, hang in there. Let me make uh, four qualifying statements before we uh, look at these issues. First thing, and Nick prayed this in his prayer, God qualifies you. You know, often in ministry, we, we disqualify ourselves. We say, no, we can't do that. We can't possibly think those thoughts. I'm just a Samaritan. Why are you talking to me? I've got a stutter. You, you surely shouldn't use me. Pick, pick somebody else. I'm the weakest in my clan. We, we've got ways of inventing excuses so that we're not thrust onto the front line. But God qualifies us. The second thing is that God has a way of taking our absolute, total disasters and bringing glory to himself in them. In the words of, I like that word Tyron's been using, pivot. He can, he can pivot all things. For in all things, God works together for the good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. So I don't think that he takes your mess and he uses it to bless you as such. He just, he can take even your disasters, I think even your sin, and he can bring glory to himself and he can speak to people through it. 
If the good thing is the gospel, then even our weakness can point to the gospel. And then thirdly, I think God uses weak, unschooled, ordinary men. Sometimes, you know, you, God does something. Let's just say something happens. I don't know how often I've thought this. I've thought, Lord, how, how, why did you let me see that? I mean, out of all the people in the world, I feel like, but I'm so grateful that you did. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Think of the types of people Jesus used. He didn't just use a Samaritan woman in John 4, we heard last night. He used a woman of ill repute. When he had to feed the thousands, he picked a boy with a lunchbox. When he wanted to demonstrate worship, there's a woman anointing him with oil. The woman least qualified to do so. But that's the one he picks. He even allowed Judas to do some ministry. Think that one through. He uses the weak. And then fourth, you know, the reason he left the Holy Spirit is to help us in our weakness. Romans 8.26 says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And when we're weak, that's when he's strong. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. The other night, I was running a connect group. That's what we call our home groups uh, in a new place that we're ministering at the moment. And uh, I was speaking about being filled with the Holy Spirit. And there were a couple of brand new people who had just been saved sitting there. And there was this old timer who had been in the church maybe out of various churches around the place for maybe 20 years. And so I said to him, you know, when I pray in the morning, I think for every one word I pray in English, I pray 10 in tongues. And he said, say that again. So I said, you know, I didn't, I didn't give him a demonstration. I just said, yeah, like I run out of words. He said, I knew there was a reason. I said, a reason for it. I knew the reason all you holy guys pray so much more than me. He said, I run out of words after like one minute. I only pray for one minute a day. And so that guy was the first guy standing in the middle for us to lay hands on. He helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray, where to go, what to do. And so um, here we go. So I, I've never preached something like this before, so we'll see. It might be an absolute failure, and then I'll have point number 11. <laughs> Never preach on your disasters. <laughs> Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would be glorified, Lord Jesus, that you would skill us, equip us, and that you would be enthroned today as we muddle our way through church and we muddle our way through this incredible privilege you give us to lead your people. I pray that you'd speak to us. Amen. Okay, about 13 years ago, I nearly killed our entire core team. And uh, the reason I did so was because our model for doing church had become very fruitful and we had grown very quickly and I got stuck in it. 
I got stuck. Remember, we've been taught from early days to have a new wineskin to receive the new wine. But it's very easy to get stuck. And so what we did around about 13 years ago, or 2006, we, we started to do church at multiple places at the same time. And we had a very centralized model. And so the guy who was leading worship at the main site, or the original site, led worship at all these other venues. And the person who led children's ministry, who's sitting in the second row over there, led children's ministry over all the other sites as well. And it, because they were skilled at it, because they had capacity at it at the home base, when they rolled it out, it rolled out very quickly. And I don't know what happened. It was just something that God did with us. I'm certainly not suggesting you do that. But for a couple of years, we just took off. And then one day, the guy who led our worship, his name was Aiden Whitaker, uh, his father came to me. Aiden had decided he was going to go to New Zealand. He wound up, you know, going to America. But, <laughs> but he just wanted to get out of the country. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to get out. And it wasn't because God was calling him. It was because I was killing him. His father came to me and he said, have you, have you heard the story of a canary in a mine shaft? So I said, yes, I know what a canary in a mine shaft is. It dies first before the miners die. He says, my son is the canary in your mine shaft. I said, you're killing. He said, he said he's supposed to be a singer. When did you last hear him write a song? So I said, well, that's a point. He says, you've turned him into administrator. He's like administrating the bands and all the sites. Stephen Wimble, who was involved in our preaching, rolling out the preachers, suddenly contracted a sickness, and he couldn't move out of bed. Russell Eels, who was our administrator, um, got very sick and took leave for months. Grant Borum came to me and said, I'm going to plant a church. <laughs> so I said, but you told me you were never going to plant a church. He said, hey, listen. Planning a church and leading 10 children's churches, I think I know which is the easier one. I'm leaving. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. And so he left. And I suddenly saw this thing crumbling around me. All my generals were running for the hill. And I realized, I said, look, God, what's going on? And what had happened, I'd got stuck. I got stuck in my wineskin. And, and when you look at it from the outside, it looked successful, but if you had to measure it against Matthew 9, 17, neither do people pour new wine. You see, new wine was coming into an old wineskin. You say, God, it wasn't very old. It was only like three years old. Three years can be a lifetime. Ask Grant Borum, he'll tell you. If they do, the skins will burst. You will hurt people. If you get stuck, you know, were you listening to what Tyron said? That we were released from a whole lot of stuff through COVID. You pack that stuff back again, and things are going to burst, and people are going to get hurt. And so, what should your model look like? I think you should be asking this question. God, who have you given me? And what is their gifting? And when I blow in it, what are they going to do? That should shape your model. 
your model should be like a glove that fits on your hand. And if a couple of fingers, digits, go plant somewhere, your hand looks different. And your model should be different. Down in Cape Town, I'm ministering alongside a team there, and there is a businessman who retired at the age of 48. He got saved at the age of 52. And he's got this longing on his heart to disciple young guys, but quite frankly, he doesn't know Adam from Abraham. He's got a lot of time on his hands. He's got some skills in the marketplace, but I haven't known how to use him. And then last weekend, I was ministering in Claxtop, and I met a guy called Murdoch, some of you know him, who's invented a game, a business game. But he told me about this business game. Suddenly, I thought of this guy in the Western Cape. And so I'm asking Murdoch to fly down, and I don't, you know, I, I do care that people get jobs, and I do care that Murdoch's game goes nicely. But the thing I'm really interested in is activating this guy with a discipleship tool because he wants to disciple people. He's never going to preach, but he's going to be using young people, and I think he's going to have access into a business world that I have no access to. I think he's got stories to tell that I could never even make up. And when he's got this little tool, which is gospel-centered, Jesus-glorifying in his hands, he's going to go on a journey. And so my model's going to look a little different there because I've got this dude. We should ask the question, who's God given us? And we shouldn't be looking over the fence and saying, I want a model like that one. We shouldn't. That's a stiff wineskin. Remember what should be governing what's going on in your model is the wine that's coming. And this is the only clue we've got. It's got to be flexible, which means it's got to change. It's got to change. It took a lot of pain for some of my closest friends for me to learn that lesson. Lesson number two. Certainly in the early days, and I must admit I'm not even free from this yet, but I was very easily distracted when I was started to preach. So if a, a squeaking fan, I would stop and say, fix the fan. A squeaking baby, this was the worst. I glare. I've got, got rather mobile eyebrows, so it helps. I glare. And uh, if that didn't work, sometimes, once my brother, I've got a couple of brothers who are in the ministry, but one brother came to visit, and it was Easter Sunday. Can you believe it? On Easter, a place was packed out. He put his blanket on the floor in front of my pulpit, and his two little kids on the blanket with noisy toys. Like I'm preaching the gospel, you know, important stuff. And I'm looking at these kids. Now they're my niece and nephew, and I'm supposed to really... I thought, I've got to grow up. I've got to get over this. But I just couldn't. Eventually, I stopped the meeting. This is Easter Sunday. And I say, Crofts, that's what we call each other. You know. And I point at his kids. Now, everyone's thinking, no, he's not going to do it. He's not going to do it. <laughs> and I say, Crofts, I know at your church you don't do this. But at our church, we've got a fantastic babies facility. Can you be? He, it took him about, about seven years to come back to our church, ever. <laughs> I've done far worse than that. I've done far worse than that. I'll tell you, I must be careful with these stories, but I remember the one day I was preaching, 
and I was, I was discipling this family who was going through a divorce. So I saw the husband arrive. He takes a seat. And I'm looking at him, and I think, oh, gee, his wife's not with him. Things are not going well. Next minute, I see a young woman sitting next to him. So I'm looking, and I'm preaching. Then I see his hand go around the young woman. And, and then I see them giggling. And I think, no, this is terrible. So, so I aim my pulpit like this, and I think, no, God, don't get distracted. Go and get distracted. Again, packed out. I'm taking immorality going on while I'm preaching. So I say, turn to Matthew chapter 5. I turn the mic off. I go down. There's a couple sitting in the side there. Sort them out. And I go back. Now I'm preaching in this corner because, see, I'm distracted. And uh, next minute, my elder gets up, and he walks out the door. And I think, oh, now I've offended this elder, and I've still got immorality going on in the church. Now, I think, I'm, I don't even know what I'm preaching. It's going really bad. Next one, I see him coming in the back. So I think, oh, that's a clever elder. Good thing I picked a pastoral guy because he's going to do it quietly. He's surveying the crowd. And then horror of horrors, he picks the wrong couple. Oh, are you kidding me? He picks a married couple. I landed the sermon after about three minutes. The church, shortest church service in the history of One Life Church. You know, if I'm truthful, that, <laughs> yes, that elder also planted, absolutely true. <laughs> you can dress this up and say, hey, I got an attention to detail. You, you, you can say I'm a little bit OCD. You can say, I'm shooting for excellence. But the reality is, there's a control issue here. It took me a long time to learn this. There is an inverse relationship between control and growth. The more you control, the less it grows. Now, there are some things you fight for. But I can remember sitting down when God taught me this lesson, and he's still teaching me this lesson. He said, I've got to ask myself, why, do, why am I controlling that? Why am I insisting on that? Listen, the bigger you grow, the more you need to tighten your relationships and lose the control. In business environments, that happens exactly opposite. As your business grows, you tighten up your systems, you tighten up your procedures, you tighten up your policies, and relationships are on the altar. But in the kingdom, as you grow, you say, God, let me tighten my friendships and loosen my control. There's an inverse relationship between control and growth. That's, Sue's got a much better point than that. Let me talk a little bit I'll get back to my mistakes in a minute, but let me talk a little bit about space and growth. The way God has designed us is that we need space to grow. You need to breathe. And sometimes we can over-lead. Have you heard of the concept of a helicopter parent? You want to protect little... 
the little baby, you want to pick it, and it goes to high school, and mommy is still running around. It's interesting to me that as the church grew in Antioch, the Holy Spirit said, get Paul and Barnabas out of here. For the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Paul and Barnabas, but also for the sake of Antioch. Okay, they did make a little bit of a mistake that had to get sorted out straight, but they needed space to grow. Jesus said this. Can you believe Jesus said this? It is better that I go. Jesus said, for you to grow, I'm going to step away and I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. And that is better for you. You need space to grow. I have a good friend who was chased out of his church. And uh, it was quite, quite traumatic. I, I helped him put himself together afterwards, but one of his elders came to him just before he was given the left boot of fellowship and said this to him, you're a gift from heaven. In fact, you're just like condensed milk. A teaspoon of you is like milk from heaven, but a tin of you Makes me sick. Imagine one of your elders saying that to you. He's just saying, give me a teaspoon and then get out of the way. It's possible to overlead. There's an inverse relationship between control and growth. I was explaining this to my elders some time ago, and one of my elders said to me, you know, you know what my unsaved sister-in-law said to me? I said, what? She said, I've been watching you do the ministry thing. you like one of those irritating waiters. She says, what do you mean? She says, you keep hovering around the table, asking if the steaks are right, asking if you want more stuff. Dish up the food and for goodness sake, get out of the way. I said, that was an unsaved sister-in-law. He says, unsaved. I said, poor, the Holy Spirit was using her, my friend. <laughs> There's an inverse relationship. I'm honestly convinced the reason God's taken me out of KZN is to get me out of the way. Because I, I battle with this thing. And the bigger the men and women are that you're releasing, the more you've got to give them room. I'm not saying abdicate. I'm not saying don't point them to Jesus. I'm not saying don't point them in the right direction. But you can't micromanage them. You can't hover over them. And you know, the, the funny thing is, the church, I'm not talking about the leaders, I'm not talking about the strong guys around you, but the people in the church will be used by the devil to sing your praises and to keep telling you things like this, the church misses you when you're gone. We need you at the door to shake everybody's hand. You're the one who's going to do most of the preaching. Rubbish! Rubbish! Point to Jesus, bring from heaven, and get out of the way. Because you need space to grow. You know the story of the potted plant that needs space to grow. 
Number three. When Ray Oliver, 22 odd years ago, handed over the leadership of the team to me, this is what he said. I said to him, hey Ray, please tell me my, what I need to work on. He says, no, we got you ready, you're fine. I was 32 years old. I, I, I was really rough around the edges, so I knew that he was just being polite. So I said, please tell me something. So he says, well, if you have to pull it out of me, it's your face. <laughs> so I said, my face. So he says, it's way too expressive. He says, we all know when you're happy. We all know when you're disinterested. We all know. You've got to learn how to play poker, boy. You've got to just, you're way too loud. You're way too loud. And I tell you, it's taken me a long time to learn this. Your body language, just the way you communicate with people. I tell you, this is the biggest mistake I made. We, we built this massive auditorium in 2005. And I had this team. We used to sit huddled up in a tight group. And they went to this auditorium, and this front row was so long, the guys sort of lost touch with each other. They were all the way down the front row. And I'd gotten to a habit, and Sue had actually told me to stop doing this, but I thought, she, you know, what does she know? <laughs> but I was doing things like this. I would lean so I, I caught the attention of someone in the front row, and I would go. <whistles> and I would go, hey, get his attention. And, and, and this finger of mine. Forget about my eyebrows, my finger was, and it didn't look like a conductor. It looked like a jolly military instruction. And one of my elders who also planted <laughs> shortly after, he wasn't part of that. He's a very dear guy who's now, in fact, that's his name, uh, said to me, I can't take this anymore. I'm not your dog. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. <laughs> I said, no, you've got, it, it was traumatic for me. He said it just before I was going away. Asked you, I didn't sleep for about a week. I came back and I said, serious, but he said, hey, I've just, my friendship with you and my function with you, they've got muddled up. Bruce, what you're doing at Hole in the Wall, but is, I know you're not the only guy doing this, but it's amazing. God has built this family. In fact, he's built his church on relationships with each other. Because we're connected to Jesus, we can have friendships with the most weird and wonderful people. And our function can so easy muddle that up. Jesus looked at the sheep, and he saw they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he had compassion on them. How many times when he looked out over the crowd, he had compassion on them? And so, uh, if I have one regret as I look back, when you know that fruitfulness and the harvest can be intoxicating. And you can have your eyes on the prize and you can have your eyes on seeing people getting saved and the closest to you. Richard Preston, as he said goodbye to us in our little pre-service prayer thing here, said, we've got 
an 11th commandment in this place. I thought, oh, my word, this guy's Old Testament theology. What is it about? And he says, thou shalt have fun. And uh, so actually, since I've been in Cape Town, I've taken up golf again. And uh, in a proper way. Not, not just once a year. And I, no, I think God wants to remind us of that. Another thing that I have really messed up in a lot with is made emphatic statements about things that we will never do. That are not based on doctrine. They are not things that God has said. We have just sort of decided we will never do that and made this emphatic statement. And sometimes it's in comparison to other movements or other parts of Christendom. And you say, we will never do that. I think the Lord smiles and laughs at those. When we started doing church at multiple locations, one of the things that I said, we will never do this outside of our city. Ever. Because then it will become a denomination. I preached this from pulpits all over the universe. That if you do church in more than one city at a time, your relationships are going to be on the altar. And it will be held together by structures, systems, and policies, and that will be a denomination. I think what happened. So we had gone north, south, east, west in our city in 2010. And a prophetic guy phoned me from Dubai in the middle of my holiday. And he said to me, God, I see this picture. I've been sitting in an elders meeting, and I, you, I see this picture of you. Can I send you the picture? And this was the story. He, he said, I see property and people being added to your estate. So it was very weird terminology. That was the heading, property and people being added to your estate. He said, I see a picture of two rivers. One river joins the other river, and the two rivers carry on going. And the one river represents creative leadership, and the other river represents financial provision. And God says to you, press on with your creative leadership, because he is going to underwrite it. Well, I didn't know what that meant. I thought, there's a strange prophet from Dubai. I put it in the back of my Bible. I had been contacted about a month before that from a pastor who had lost his wife. He had about 20 people in like a home group that met on a farm in Moy River. And he said, God woke me up and said, then you need to come and do your church here. So I said, I'm not going to do a church there. I'll send you a vicar, a country vicar. I'll send you a pastor. He can go and he'll do a much better job. He said, no, God said to me that you are going to do this. I said, there's no way a church can do that because it'll become a denomination. We will never do church outside of our city. So anyway, I sort of put him in his place, came back from my holiday with his prophecy stuck in my Bible, wondering what on earth that meant, just looking around my city, wondering where the rivers were, wondering where the mountains were. This guy phones me up again and he says, come, can you have, come have coffee? So he says, when you come and take over, I said, I told you, we're not coming. He says, no, 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 God has said when. He says, when you come and take over, I give you the keys to the estate. I said, hello. I said, do you tell me these 20 people own this farm? He, he says, yeah, the, this, these 20 people own this farm. You, you get the farm with the 20 people. 
So I said, hold on a minute. I went to the car. I got out this prophetic word, and I put it on the table, and I said, I'm just going to ask you, is there a river on this farm? He says there are two, and they join. Well, I showed him the prophecy, and I said, I know I said never. <laughs> but apparently God didn't. <laughs> God needed to use that to shake me out of my nonsense. We need to be very careful about making categoric we will never do because God often does. We can look over the fence and not understand what people are doing and say, that thing can't be right. God can't be doing it. He will never. How often I've had egg on my face like that. You see, guys, when our, when our doctrine when the centeredness of Jesus and the, the doctrine we contend for and the values that we live by are not pulsing through our veins, you know what people do? They hold on to models and meetings and outer forms of doing church. And that's when your wineskin becomes all crusty and, and hard. But if, as we heard last night, the main thing is Christ and Christ crucified. And our doctrine is what we hold on to. And our values are what we contend. I'm not, I'm not talking about praxis. I'm talking about values. Values of friendship and wanting to see the power of God come and wanting to see the faith built in our people and wanting to see the priesthood mobilized where those values are, are forming and shaping us. Then then people aren't clutching to the outer forms. And so be careful, is what I've been taught. Be careful not to say never. Number five. Once, I was way too hasty on laying hands on an elder. And it didn't go well. So I'd known this man for 20 years. I'd preached in his church for 20 years. He asked if he could hand that over and come and join our team. And I said, in 40-something in years of our church history, we've never had a pastor join us from the outside. But the prophets were prophesying. Sorry, prophets. And... My friends were testifying. And so what we said to the guy, come and pretend you're part of our team for six months. And after a year, we'll make a decision whether you should actually come and run with us. So for the six, at six months, he said, Grant, we've got to hasten this. And I couldn't have inquired of the Lord properly. After the first elders meeting, I could see it wasn't going to go well. But by then he was on staff. He's somewhere else in the universe today. Uh, he won't take my phone calls. And I think if you had to, he loves Jesus, this man. I think if you had to say, line up the villains in church history, I think I might take pole position in his life. I tried all I could. 
I threw money at the problem. I threw my friends at the problem. I humbled myself as best I could, but I had made a mistake. He should never have been ordained onto our team because his values were like the flip side of a coin. I'm not saying they were wrong. They were just not ours. It was like he wasn't a family member. It was like I got married to the wrong person. I can't say it politer than that. And you say, well, Grant, you should have carried on with it. Sometimes that decision is taken out of your hands. And uh, what it did, it slowed me down on ordaining people that hadn't been born again in our church for a long time. Uh, funnily enough, God brought a guy in Cape Town who I'd also known for 20 years, who had the exact same name as this previous dude. <laughs> and we've just made him an elder. So I think one of the things, I mean, it was a big mistake, but there's a reason Paul says, do not be hasty with the laying on of hands. But at the same time, you can't let that wound you. You can't let it close up shop. You can't let it stop you when you do make those mistakes. I think the, an equal mistake I have made is, is employing, and this is a message to lead guys, not really inquiring of the Lord as to whether I should employ that person. Because we can't in the kingdom really unemploy people, can we? So we've, I, mean, I suppose you can, but we've made a decision, you know, we don't fire people. So if you make a mistake hiring someone, that's a loaded payroll. This is just for lead elders. I, I've made that mistake. I, and I just think on that, anyway, let me, let me move on. I'm going to get into trouble because I won't get to Sue's points. In the quest of wanting to be relevant and wanting to present Jesus to a world that's got his fingers stuck in its ears, I've made some real bad mistakes. We try to get really um, sensational with our topics during one season. Now, uh, some of you will remember one Julius Malema when he was head of the ANC Youth League is famed, and this is not a political statement, this is a historical one, to say, we will die for Zuma. He probably also thought he shouldn't have said that years gone later, but well, I think he said we'll kill for Zuma. Anyway, one of our young pastors said, the whole world is talking about this, we should preach on something similar. I said, like, are you mad? He says, how about the topic, willing to die for Zuma? I said, no, absolutely not. He said, no, hang on, hear me out. Jesus was willing to die for Zuma. So I said, you're going to put Jesus in there? He says, no, 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 I'm just going to ask the question. Willing to die for Zuma, question mark. So I'm wanting to not control too much. <laughs> I'm wanting to blow wind in the boy's sails. So I said, I'm okay. You use that as your topic for Sunday morning. Willing to die for Zuma, question mark. Next minute. I get a phone call, and the phone call comes from Jacob Zuma's secretary, 
We have heard this is what you're preaching on. Is it true? Yes, it's true. What are you doing with our president? I said, nothing. Jesus is willing to die for Zoom. <laughs> I nearly wanted to say, it's not me, it's not me, it's him. But, but, I, di but I didn't. So she says, well, he wants to come and hear what you have to say. I nearly had heart failure. I put the phone down. I phoned this young elder. He says, no, I've just been phoned. The secretary directed a phone call from Spoon de Bele, the, secret, I mean, the, the premier of KZN. Anyway, we, we got ourselves into such big trouble. The press arrived, 35 press houses arrived. And I'm going to stop the story right here because now it's going to move into politics, but <laughs> I'm saying this was a big, big mistake. And we, anyway, Jesus was not glorified. The church was jam-packed just before the service started. He had flown from Pretoria down to Durban. Uh, he got to Hammersdale. He phoned us up and he said, the wrong press is there. I'm not coming. So now the, I don't know how the word had got out, but the word had got out. And when all was said and done, fortunately, we didn't wind up on carte blanche. And it pretty much went understated, but we learned a massive lesson. There, there, was, there, was, there was a lot of publicity, but there was no glorifying of Jesus there. I'll tell you another one we did is that I, I have a business background, and uh, our guys, drama guys, put on a play like the Pilgrim's Progress. Have you heard of that? Uh, and... It was an amazing drama. It was, you bought tickets, a compu ticket. And I looked at them, I thought, Pilgrim's Progress, bad title. And for some reason, we called it The Dragon's Throat. Nobody came. <laughs> Nobody comes to listen to a drama, you know, The Dragon's Throat. About a year later, I said to the guys as we sat down, you know what? Jesus doesn't really need help. In attracting people this way. Why don't we just do a series entitled, Who is Jesus? And we had a little mini revival breakout. What did I learn through, through those? I, I, so we've just done Romans, book, book of Romans. Do you know what Romans 1.18 is all about? L-G-B-T-Q. Had I not learned these lessons, I know what I would have done when I got to verse 18. We've dealt with that subject very thoroughly. And if you go onto our website, not under is gay okay, but under Romans 1.18, you'll see an hour preach on that. But I, I suppose that the lesson we learned in those days was just keep it Jesus. Just keep it you don't need a spin doctor. You don't need to get sensational. You don't need to get all sexy to get the gospel out there. I should leave my points for a moment. Eh? And, and let me just give you one more of mine, and then I'll go to Susan. When I came 
When I came out of business, I had a few contacts in business, and I, I would often speak at business functions. And I remember the, this one moment, I was asked to speak to the lawyers and realtors in our city. It was a motivational talk that they knew that I would, had become a pastor, but I wasn't speaking there on that capacity. And I remember totally disregarding that moment. Cocky, arrogant, and in that business fraternity, I presented the gospel in the most offensive way. And you could, you could say, God, well, you were being bold as a lion. No, arrogant as an idiot. I've never had an invitation back to the lawyers and the realtors association of Maritzburg. But I, I think that when um, it comes to evangelism, this is the lesson I've learned. You can try and create the fire. Or you can blow on the fire that's already there. You, you, you can try and kick down doors or you can knock on the door. And when they stamp it in your face, you could wipe the dust off your feet. Luke chapter 10. And do what Jesus said and go and find the man of peace. Now, obviously, there are times where we are heralding the gospel to those who do not want to hear. Hopefully, it's been done in a, a humble way. But most times, I think God is saying, look for, my, look for where I'm working. So when we moved down to Cape Town about, it must have been about 15 months ago, we had no idea what we were going to do there. I mean, nobody knew us really in Cape Town. Uh, I'm a grandpa now. Uh, a couple of young pastors have said, can we come with you? But um, they'd never done anything like this before either. And I felt God say this to me. You can either try and create a flame or you can blow on the flame. And so if you had to ask, where are you working now in Cape Town? Where are your groups? Where are your communities of Christians meeting? And where is God working? It wasn't carefully strategized. It wasn't there's a community of people, profile them. There's no churches in there. Let's go there. It was just where is a flicker of God's life working? Where is there an open door? Let's run through that thing, blow on that thing. If it works, we do it there. That's what we've been doing. Let me give you one illustration. We were sitting in, um, I mean, it, it was even this bizarre. We went down there, and the young guys went in ahead of us, started a couple of little home groups. And when we arrived, the old bullets, they said, you guys need to go and live in the suburbs because we have attracted a whole bunch of young people. We haven't got the families. Go into the southern suburbs. So we went there. We drove around Newlands and Rondebosch and saw these little white picket fences with dogs and swimming pools and said, nah. How are we going to even knock on those doors anyway? So we went down and lived at the beach. And we knew of a retired couple in Somerset. So I said to Sue, let's go visit that retired couple. Maybe they'll have tea with us. That's literally how we planted. We go and met this couple. They were very happy to have tea with us because they knew nobody in Somerset. Nobody. In their 70s. Hardly, you know, the gregarious Billy Graham type evangelists that you would want to plant a church with. And so we had tea with them. 
But by the time we'd got there, we knew of another couple from Harrisburg, similar boat, also retired, and these two couples didn't know each other, so we let them have tea together. This geriatric tea party. <laughs> we were young enough to be the, the Sunday school uh, of this particular home group. And so as we were leaving, I said, I'll tell you what, I'm not very busy these days. How about I'll run a connect group out here in Somerset? As we're driving the 40 kilometers back to Cape Town, Sue says, Grant, are you mad? Like, they're never going to invite a soul. They'll have trouble inviting each other. How are we going to start a home group then? Anyway, it was a, we drove out there every Thursday night, but it was a place where we could invite people that we'd bumped into to go. Next minute, there were about 17 people there, and then it happened. I got a guy's phone number by a set of circumstances I won't bore you with the details of, and I phoned the guy, and he was absolutely astonished. We'd never met each other, but he had had a dream that I was going to phone him. He told his wife, Grant's going to phone me. She said, don't be stupid. He doesn't know him. We don't know him. We, we don't know each other. Why is he going to phone you? That day, I phoned him. So when I heard the story, I pitched up, and we like looked astonished at each other that the dream is now a reality. I'm standing in front of him. It's like, he had a dream, old men will dream dreams. He's older than me, by the way. <laughs> and uh, there is a church there. Now, he was also a foreigner from an outside province, and now there's a church thriving church of multiple home groups and bands and youth groups and that was in August last year. We could never have imagined that. We could never have created that. But there was a flicker of a flame there. And if you blow on the flame, your model will change. What you do will change. And far better than trying to kick the door down yourself. Now, let me jump to Sue's. This is what you've all been waiting for, hey. So she had no idea I was going to read these to you. This was rather irritated last night when she was trying to listen to Tyron. I said, she wrote one down. I said, write another one. She wrote another one. She looks at me. I said, write another one. She obviously thought what Tyron was preaching was really convicting me <laughs> or something. And so she writes down, you have not taken regular times off weekly or had intentional holidays. We've been married for 30 years, and uh, that's maybe the reason I haven't got me here. I think we can kid ourselves. I think we can kid ourselves that we are replenishing. And uh, there have been seasons in my ministry life where um, I've, I've known that I've been running on empty. I've known that I've been running in self-effort rather than spirit effort. But even if you've been led by the Spirit, God has built us this way to have time off. So I shouldn't be preaching this to you, should I, seeing that I've been rebuked by the one who knows me best. But he has a... So I, I'm reasonably good at not doing the normal ministry work on a Monday. But I, I sort of kid myself that doing these other things replenishes me. So, 
Why is this building so quiet? God, God can use you even when you stuff up like this. Sorry, I shouldn't use that word. It was a Monday. That's our day off. And I said to Sue, let's go to Langabon. We've never seen the flowers. And so we went, but it was the beginning of August. It wasn't flower time. So it was a bit of a damn script. So I'm, you know, I'm not really one for sitting around too long. So I said, well, we're in Langabon. I know there was a one life person here somewhere. Phone a friend, phone a friend, phone a friend, phone a friend, get a phone number. He owns a coffee shop. Walk into the coffee shop. We bumped into a whole lot of people who this guy had led to the Lord. And that there is a church now. So even when you mess up your Mondays, I'm, I'm just chucking that in for those of you who, I'm not giving an excuse not to rest, but even if you've messed up like this, God can still use you, still use you. But it is serious, friend. I've been intrigued that the guys have all got up to preach so far, all over 50. And Tony Sivrat, he's a grandpa of six kids. He's coming up just now. And uh, I do trust that by before the end of this, that uh, there will be some prayer for young guys. But young guys, if you want to end strong, I have a wife who, who drums this into me. If I was married to a person like me, I would have crashed and burned 20 years ago. And so that's one of the greatest gifts that she is to me, actually, to to say, come on, rest. Anyway. Sometimes, number two. In fact, she, she didn't say sometimes, she says most times. You celebrate people's hard work rather than celebrate the fun times. And what you celebrate becomes. And so we are surrounded with workaholics. So you can see my wife was busy getting a point across to me, can't you? But just think about that. What you celebrate, you reproduce. And you, I've got really good at finding the scriptures that back your weaknesses. So in John chapter 5, Jesus says, my father in heaven is always working, and I too am at work. <laughs> but what you celebrate, what you celebrate, you reproduce. And then this is something that I suppose I, I will go and speak to her about when I get home today. Is that you can write people off. Now, I don't think that people around me would think that, but she obviously hears what I say when I get home. So I've already told you we don't fire people. But if my wife says to me, you write them off, what have I whispered? That's enough. Hers are way too way too accurate, aren't they? John said this, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom 
waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, John said. And it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. Remember John said this. Jesus said this of John. There is no one born of woman greater than John. That's quite a compliment. So in other words, Jesus says, you can model yourself a little bit on that guy because there's no one born in woman greater than that guy. And John says, this is who I am. Remember, he was preparing the people for Jesus. He was preparing the bride for the groom. And he says this, my eyes are on the groom. They're not on the bride. He said, I'm, I've just done a wedding for Saganipo Hadebe. He's one of our pastors. And he married Ntombi. And he had a best man. Spoo Mnieni, who is also one of our pastors. Spoo is a big-sized guy. Runs a site up at Mpenthe. And he had these two guys. He was the best man. I've never seen such a nervous best man in my whole life. He was holding the rings. The rings were almost crushed in his big hands because he thought he was going to drop them. But you know, everybody's ooing and eyeing as the bride walks down. The oak wasn't even looking at the bride. Sweat pouring down his cheeks, looking at the groom, holding this thing. Even in his speech, when he makes his best man's speech, he stood right next to the groom, and he asked him about seven times, am I allowed to say this? And then he says it. I thought to myself, I've never seen such a good example of a best man, of a groomsman. It's like the only time he paid any attention to the bride was when the groom said, go and do that. That's what John said. I'd leave you with one thought, friends. Today we've been speaking about my mistakes in dealing with the bride. If I just sum it up in one word, and I think I blundered into all those things when I was looking at the bride rather than looking at the groom. Our job as we attend to the bride is to be mesmerized with the groom. And then he says to you, now that's what you're going to do, that's what you're going to do. Amen.